Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Let me tell you about the Blue Cash Preferred Card from American Express. With 6% cash back at U.S. supermarkets on up to $6,000 in purchases, that means you get 6% cash back on chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies, and the elusive triple chocolate chip cookie. It's cash back, backed by the service and security of membership. Start earning cash back at AmexBlueCash.com. Terms apply. Hey, Kevin. Yes, Rebecca. What do we want to ask our listeners to do this week? It'd be great for them to sign up for our newsletter by going to crimewriterson.com. You'll get all sorts of information, like we'll give you a heads up about what special podcast we may be talking about. Or in our TV episode, show. Or TV show. Or movie. Yeah. It's or a good, book club. Or, <laughs> yeah. And all you have to do is go to crimewriterson.com, drop in your email, and boom. Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. All right. I think we just roll the show. What do you think? You're not going to fool me. You always say roll the show and then you give me grief. I'm going to do it. Though. Start the show. All right. Do it. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. We're back, and we're talking about a crime podcast featuring a reporter's relationship with an inmate, the questionable nature of his conviction, and the reliability of eyewitness testimony that put him in prison. Nope, we're not talking about Serial Season 1. We're discussing a four-part series on the podcast, Reply All. We'll discuss that among our panel and with a special guest who knows a little bit about that show. So joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I'm just blowing the uh, cobwebs off the microphone. <laughs> it's only been two weeks, Kevin. Big spiders. So there. dramatic. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed P.I. Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also with us is our staff pessimist, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, what did you do on your week off? Yeah, I don't think I did a whole lot very exciting. I just wished I was podcasting. What about you, Laura? Uh, I had an exciting week. I chaperoned a field trip and rode a school bus all the way to Boston which was quite an experience, mm. and I went golfing for the first time. Wow, well, really? You are a lady of leisure, Laura Brecker. I guess so, I know. It, the golfing thing was not pretty. It really wasn't good. And they really need to add wine to the little beer carts. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've got a great golf outfit already, though, is what I'm guessing. I had a lovely hat. What about you, Kevin? How did you enjoy your week off from this podcast? Oh, I went with you to New York where you got sick. I got really <laughs> sick. I was really, really sick. So if I cough at any time during this podcast, I apologize to our audience and to you guys. I've had this horrible flu thing that has been sticking around 
on for weeks. It's just a nightmare. All right. So first off, we do have to address a couple of listener corrections. We got a tremendous amount of flack on social media and email because I guess we implied in our conversation with John Cryer that Andrew McCarthy and Molly Ringwald weren't up to much <laughs> these days. Apparently, I feel like we implied it. I think we pretty much. <laughs> well, apparently, the actor formerly known as Blaine is now playing a creepy sex offender on a TV show called The Family, and Molly Ringwald has a variety of projects going on. But here's my question: Do you guys think it's fair to say that John Cryer's current level of fame and success is a little bit more prominent? Were we still justified in kind of saying what we said? What do you think, Toby? Well, of those three, only one of them's been on our show. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. What do you think, Kevin? I, I will just say, you know, if you read John's book, I will say that those two actors were not particularly nice to him at the time or in the years since. So I think our point was, you know, in the end, who really got the brass ring here? And it was definitely John Cryer. But you are correct. Molly Ringwald and, and Andrew McCarthy are currently uh, working actors. So uh, good for them. It's not like they're woodworkers, like the guy that I like. <laughs> That's right, Jake Ryan from 16 Candles, uh, your favorite yeah. child actor pick who you want to come back, uh, isn't really doing anything at all in show business. That's right, right? Whatever happened to that Jordan Catalano? He won an Oscar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can say much about that Jordan Catalano, except that he was adorable. And good things keep happening to John Cryer. Good things do keep happening to John Cryer. In fact, since he's been on our podcast, it's been announced that he will be hosting the Addendum After Show when the new season of Undisclosed begins, its second season. So my question, Kevin, for you is, uh, should we take credit for launching yet another future podcast superstar? We are the kingmakers. <laughs> we had on Rabia before Rabia was big. And then yeah, we before. Had, before. Then we had the folks from Tannis and Black Tape. We've had Colin. Uh, we had Colin. <laughs> uh, that super smart British lady. Yeah. She's going to be huge. She's going to be huge. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this crier guy. Why, Rick? Why, Rick? Why, Rick? Oh, he's going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool. Uh, and Laura, I do have uh, one correction I want to issue to you personally. I have made some disparaging <laughs> remarks about a show you recommended called Happy Valley. I was calling it Unhappy Valley, Depressed Valley, Suicidal Valley. I've come around. It is one of the best crime dramas mm. I've seen in a very long time. Kevin and I whipped through the second season, and we are also now in love with Sarah Lancashire. And but you're not wrong. Nobody in Happy Valley is happy. <laughs> no, it's it's still depressing, but she is so badass on that show. I love that character. Great character, great show, and we can recommend it very, very highly. So, well, speaking of podcasts and other superstars, our Twitter feeds and mailboxes got stuffed over the past two weeks with dozens of listeners recommending, more like demanding, that we listen to and then talk about a true crime podcast project from an unlikely source. This latest legal mystery came in the form of a four-part series on the Gimlet Media podcast, Reply All. It was unexpected because Reply All typically focuses on stories about the internet, but what started as a piece about a simple blog morphed into a four-episode series that some are saying should be called Serial Part 2. So if you haven't listened to Reply All's four episodes called On the Inside and don't want to be spoiled, you may want to pause this episode right here and download Reply All episodes 64 to 67. They're called On the Inside, Parts 1 through 4. And remember, we're off next week, so we'll yeah, still be... we're not going anywhere. We'll still be waiting yeah, here when you get back. have to rush through it. <laughs> exactly. So would you all agree that our listeners should listen to these four episodes? It's worth listening to. Quick roundtable. Toby, yes or no? Yes, definitely. Laura, yes or no? Absolutely. And Kevin? Duh. All right. So before we have our conversation about the On the Inside series from Apply All, let's listen first to a conversation I had earlier today with someone who knows a little bit about this story. 
I am Shruti Panamaneni, and I'm a producer on a podcast called Reply All, which is part of Gimlet Media, and I have just finished <laughs> hours ago, like a four-part crime series that we've called On the Inside. So can you tell me a little bit about your reporting background before Reply All? Had you reported crime stories before? No. I have done a, a few different kinds of reporting. My background is science, so I have a degree in math, um, <laughs> for what that's worth. And when I first got into journalism, I was really interested in science stories. And, and like I guess the kinds of science stories that I loved were always micro-mysteries, you know? Yeah. Um, I love medical mysteries. That's always been, I, I would say, if I had to pick a genre to spend the rest of my life with, it would be that one. And crime is just a, a natural... Like the two things go hand in hand. I'm a, a huge fan of crime reporting, whether in books or TV or, of course, like serial just blew my mind. It, it felt familiar in ways, but also levels above anything that I had done. Like it was very different than the kind of reporting I was doing. But now having done it, I feel like I can see the way. I mean, I've even done like political reporting and I feel like there's moments where I see parallels. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. I mean, we obviously Kevin and I write true crime and, uh, you know, I work in a newsroom and it's sort of the same. I don't know. I call them oh shit moments where you <laughs> like turn something over. It happens in any good story, but in crime, it just happens a lot more. It yeah. seems like you're going, you're going through a trial transcript and you're like, oh, shit. And that certainly happened to you quite a bit, I think, while you were reporting this. Um, you know, the one thing that I wanted to ask you, because I am a fan of Reply All, I actually know both your work before Reply All. And I also listened to, you know, the pre-Reply All version of Reply All, which was a <laughs> spinoff on uh, on the media called um, TLDR. So yeah. I've been a fan of this team for a while. I know that the gist of the show is it's about the Internet. And this mm-hmm. story started as... You said in the first part of the four episodes that you were interested in Paul Madrosky's blog. Yes. Now, my burning question as uh, somebody who works in radio and somebody who makes a podcast is, was the blog stuff just a way to be able to tell this story on Reply All, <laughs> the show about the Internet? Or or was that really where you started here? Would you really get sucked into this blog and it could have been an entirely different story? Last January, almost a year and a half ago, PJ, the host of the show, was working on a story about swatting. And so that's a type of prank call where kids would uh, prank call local police stations and try to get them to send a SWAT team to somebody's house. And people go to jail for that. And so I'd been trying to find this person who had been sentenced, I believe it was a prison in Texas. And I am not from the US. I don't know if this is common knowledge for everyone here, but I didn't know that people in prison didn't have access to email. And so I was kind of just generally looking around for prison communication, anything, how to get in touch with this person. And I just really stumbled onto this blog of Paul Madrowski, kind of filed it away in my brain as this odd little thing. I read a couple of posts and there was something about it that just tickled my curiosity. And you wanted to know about the mechanics of how he got it done, given that prisoners don't have the access to the internet. Exactly. You, yeah. And then you uncover that his mother is actually making the posts for him and also censoring them somewhat. And Right. Yeah. And all of this takes time, right? So, so when I first started, you know, I'm always producing other stories for other people, kind of reporting my own stories. And so this onion came in very thick. <laughs> and it took 
a while to just peel off the layers and figure out what it was that I was interested in. First, I was like, oh, prison, communications, blogs, is that interesting? And then quickly that became, it's just not the kind of story that Reply All does. And I found a lawyer who wrote about Paul's blog. Uh, she had actually helped set up the blog. She was a friend of Paul's mother. And I emailed her and I said, hey, can you tell me more about this thing? And she said, I'm not involved with it anymore, but I will tell you, Paul is very autistic and it's very hard to understand him. So I don't know if it's going to work for radio. Hmm. So that was the first red flag. And then I spoke to his mother and she said, oh, no, no, no. He's yeah, sure he's autistic, but it doesn't like you'll be able to understand him. It's fine. But the mother was such a character. <laughs> like I just had these long conversations with her because she was just full of interesting stories and and she was this older woman who basically learned how to use the internet so she could put up this blog for her son who had gone to prison when he was 18 years old and she told me just kind of it wasn't even the focus of the conversation it just fell out as a side fact she's like oh yeah Paul's really angry with me right now because he doesn't want to write the blog anymore he and he wants me to delete it and I told him I won't hmm. and so right when she said that I was like oh here's something that for me turns this into a reply all maybe story. Right. It's like a mom actually exerting the kind of control the mom wants to have because she can because her son is in prison. So she actually can do this thing that like other mothers wouldn't be able to, to do. And that, that's how it struck me anyway. I thought like how many moms would love to be able to just say no to their adult children who, who are doing something they don't want them to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And she just didn't understand at all why it would be a bad thing for him or why it would be frustrating for him. And at this point, I hadn't talked to Paul yet, right? So I didn't know that she was censoring him. She just said, uh, I asked her, why does he want to stop writing the blog? It seems like he's gotten a fair number of followers and he's really diligently written every month for years now. And she said, oh, I don't know something about he wants to focus on his case and his lawyer. He's having some problems with his lawyer. And so months later, I finally reached Paul. And, you know, as you hear in the story, he's we don't warm up to each other right away. Uh, and, and in the beginning, of course, I thought this isn't going to work. But you know what, let's just, I don't know, I feel like I've had this happen a few times with me in stories where you scrape off the top layer, and it seems like there's nothing there. But then you just, you just give it another go. And so we keep talking. And then he mentioned, I asked him, you know, why, why do you want to stop writing the blog? And more importantly, why do you want to delete it? Like, who cares if it's still there? And that really took us into what for me was the heart of this story, which was this conflict between him and his mother, which I thought had all these other interesting nuggets in it about like freedom and writing and editing and like where he was and, and how little of the world he could see and how the mother was had become this like porthole and he was very resentful. Mm -hmm. And so there was like emotion in there that I was interested in. So we keep talking. He is talking about the crime it just seems like a lot of details and he said, she said, and there were so many characters. And to be honest, I, for me, the blog was so the center of the story that I kind of thought I'll do a story about the blog, how he writes the blog. Like there's all these interesting details. Like for a long time, he couldn't have 
a pen in prison and he could have a pencil, but he wasn't allowed a sharpener. And so he'd have to sharpen it with his fingernails and, you know, just his process and way of doing this thing and how analog it was. Right, right. So how much of the story was reported in real time and, and how much of it was ready to go in the can? Almost all of it was real time reported. So the first episode, which was constructed out of many conversations I've had with Paul over the last months, that I think we, we knew the broad strokes of it. The second episode, which looked at Paul's teenage years, like his high school years, that I knew I had most of it done, I think, before the four episode run started. But the other two, I saw Paul last week, like I was in the prison last week meeting him for the first time so that this final episode got made literally in the last few days. And that's the thing, like we didn't even know it was going to be four episodes when we started. It was actually supposed to be three. You know, I I do want to talk about your subject, Paul, because... You mentioned that you didn't hit it off at the beginning. You give a very like great character establishing thumbnail sketch of him by you know talking about some of the things that he said. He sort of says some pretty openly kind of racist stuff. Um, <laughs> and then he talks about having autism and talking about how he sort of can play act and, and mirror people's mm-hmm. emotions and um, be who they think he wants them to be, that kind of thing. So yeah. you have an unreliable central character from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. How off balance is it when you're trying to get to the truth of something and everything that somebody says to you is confusing in some way. There was a moment in time where I suddenly started to see him as an unreliable character, but from the beginning, his honesty or his inability to not say what came to his mind was a thing that I found very interesting and attractive. Mm-hmm. So he would say things about women, about race, about immigrants, about pot. Like when people are really different than me in terms of the way they see their world, of course, that's when I want to start talking to them. So what was the moment when you began to see him as an unreliable character in your story? Unreliable is a tricky word. I think there was a moment when I realized this man is certainly capable of manipulation He always says, I have one face and it's the same face I show to anyone, whether it's the police or to you or to my friends. And I do believe him to a certain extent, but I do think he's capable of not telling the whole truth. So Mm -hmm. he's very good at telling half stories. I want to pivot for a minute to the other sort of main character Mm -hmm. that you really interact with in the story that's involved in the case, and that's Bob Faraci. He's the Mm -hmm. one who had the double trial with Paul Madreski. By the way, I think that's pretty unusual, the two-jury thing. When you were looking into that, the way the trial was conducted, did legal experts tell you that was an unusual way to conduct a trial with two defendants? I know two defendants isn't unusual, but two juries, yeah. So it is unusual. I spoke to different legal experts, like law professors, just uh, clinical, uh, just lawyers. And they said, it is very unusual. It seems like in Chicago, around Chicago, it does happen to some degree. The prosecutor I spoke to said, it's not that crazy. And he's in fact worked on triple jury trials, which I cannot even imagine just why. The, the logistics alone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They seem to do it because they think it's easier. Like it's more efficient because in say a case like People v. Pomodrowski and Robert Fracci, they had the state called about 40 witnesses. And so they're thinking instead of calling 40 witnesses for Robert and then uh, the same 40 for Paul, let's just do it in one trial, but we need to have two different juries. It's a weird logic. I think it could go either way. It could be, I think it worked in Robert Fracci's favor 
And I think in Paul's case, it might have worked to his detriment. Well, I'll tell you, this is, it is something that I'm wondering. I've you know worked on a lot of true crime cases, and huh? Bob Faraci was on trial for Dean Fawcett's murder but acquitted. Why do you think he talked to you? Like, what could possibly be in it for him to talk to you at this point so many years after the trial and his being acquitted? Honestly, I have that question about pretty much anyone who ever talks to me <laughs> for any length of time. With Bob, I think most people on the show my editors and and my senior producer and they thought the chances of getting him were very very slim i sent emails i tried all the phone calls i could find and then i went to chicago to talk to other people so for instance dean fawcett the victim in the story i met his mother and i had this address that was on a bankruptcy filing and i just went there it was this building i found a mailbox with his name on it and I just sat there for an hour. And in the end, I wrote a note and I said, listen, I'm doing a story about Paul Madrowski. I'm not trying to make him out to be an angel. I know that both of you were involved with a lot of different things uh, when you were younger. Uh, I do want to understand what happened that night. I've heard his side. I really need to hear yours. And I just left my phone number. And frankly, it's it's weird the things that move different people. Having met Bob, I think he felt bad that I waited there and that I'd left this handwritten note. Like, I don't think it would have had the same effect if I'd sent an email. I think there was something about knowing that I had been there and he felt obligated almost to call me back. Hmm. And then once I had him on the phone, once a person reaches out to you, I think you can make a strong case for why it's in their interest to speak to you. And I do think it was good that he spoke to me. Otherwise, it's easy to make him out to be the devil. I think the way that it sort of went down was really surprising. And it's really a compelling tape when you're sitting in that car with him Uh um, and those close quarters. And would you have been as comfortable being in that car with him if his girlfriend hadn't been with you guys? I mean, it just seemed like having interviewed people in in a variety of different situations, Uh that is a a very tight place in which to conduct a multi-hour conversation with a stranger who may or may not have been involved in a really brutal murder. I mean, I'm a relatively cautious person. And there's another person I interviewed for a story last year who was made out to be a real villain on the internet. And I had read all these terrible stories and rumors of things he'd done. And as soon as as I was in the room with him, though, I was like, oh, this is fine. This is fine. And that's how I felt about Robert Faraci. I was glad that his girlfriend was there, certainly. But not for safety reasons. It felt like was she a buffer? Yeah, yeah. It, w- it was good. I think it was good for the both of us that she was there. At one point, you have to prove to him you are who you say you are by playing an old Reply All story, which was, I think, hilarious. <sighs> but it actually, it, one of the questions I had for you, because the style of the show, I mean, you've worked on a lot of you know public radio stories, and you know how polished and shiny those mm-hmm. end up being. And Reply All has a, a, obviously, it goes through many edits, and there is polishing, but it also has a very uncut, spontaneous feel to it, the way that it's put together. I think a very intentionally conversational, uncut, spontaneous feel. Do you like that kind of storytelling better where you get to leave in the tape of you trying to find the story you reported and you don't have to like edit it, for example, so that you're doing the voiceover so that you're sparing the audience the, you know, the time of having to listen to that, you know, laborious thing, which isn't laborious. It's delightful. Do you like this better? Is it more freeing to be able to do this kind of reporting? I love it. I really do. I think as the reporter, sometimes I can feel a bit self-conscious. There are certainly moments where I 
you know, we'd be sitting in the edit room with our producers and editors, and I would say, oh, I sound so stupid when I ask that question, or I sound like a moron when I start playing the podcast, uh, or it does not go too long. And, and so all of these things are, are weighed and considered. I think in the end, we feel like there's an honesty and a weirdness to what actually happens in the room that is really nice to hear. You know, there's a trope that I think came up in radio in the last you know, several years where, you know, you hear that going into the room, you hear saying hello, you hear a person setting up like, hello, 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 one, two, three, that stuff. I think that at this point feels a little cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the kinds of moments in the interview, when you see two people negotiating like this, that still feels real. Like this is, I was not at all thinking about the listener or how this would sound. At that moment, that was me seeing a source pulling back Mm -hmm. and knowing, oh my God, he might just cut this off now. Does that make sense? It does. I think that the negotiation also helps reveal something about his character and his mistrust and, and sort of maybe what he's thinking right under the surface while he's talking to a reporter and his brain goes to, is this a cop? Like that is an unusual train of thought for a typical interview subject, right? Yeah. I do want to ask you now, I mean, the show is finished and I you know, will give our audience a spoiler alert that if they haven't listened to it yet and they don't want to be spoiled, they need to just go back and listen and then come back to this part. So we need to talk about this final episode, okay? There was a moment in this final episode which I really felt I had walked in your shoes before and I know how it feels and I just want to know what your feelings were. You went to prison to visit Paul Madrowski after talking to him on the phone for, I'm assuming, many hours, right? Yeah, almost a year. Okay, so first of all, there's just an experience of going to a prison. It is unlike anything else that you will ever do on an assignment or as a part mm-hmm. of you know day-to-day work. You have to go through security. There are all these steps. I'm assuming you had to arrange the journalist version of the visit rather than the visitor version of yes. the visit. There's that whole thing, getting permission to tape. You have to wear certain clothes, I'm assuming. I don't know if all persons are the no, same. but I had to take off my nose ring. Okay, yeah. So there's there's things like at our, our New Hampshire State Prison for Men, you can't wear anything with a hood. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't wear anything with, with like overalls with any sort of buckle on the front of it. There's all these like rules. So there is a, is a right. process that sort of gets you feeling like, okay, I'm going to a place that isn't the kind of place I normally go. Right. And then you're sitting face to face with an inmate with whom you've had extended periods of contact and, and like mm-hmm. talked about a lot of stuff. Did you have like an oh wow moment when Paul Madrowski finally walked into the room and you saw him in person? Of course. When he walked in, it was a wow moment. Also because of how familiar he felt. This story has been challenging for me because it it has in many ways felt very different than anything I've ever done before. Generally speaking, I hate studio interviews. I always wanna go talk to people in person and sit with them and read their body language. And Paul, I had just gotten very comfortable with him on the phone. There was a division there, like a wall between us that I mentally needed. And frankly, I was, planning on completing this whole series without ever having met him in person. It's such a, it was like this weird mental block I had where I was like, I don't need to meet him. And also I don't really want to meet him. Like there was something in me that was resisting the in-person conversation. I went to Chicago once about a, a month ago 
And I told him, hey, listen, I'm going. I might see your mother. And he said, you should come to the prison. I'll put you on. You're already on my visitor list. And I remember making some lame excuse like, oh, I, I have to go in 24 hours because I didn't even understand why I didn't want to see him. But I just I didn't. And so once I decided and it happened, you know, the guys who made the jinx, I happened to be talking to them about the series and they were like, oh, well, you're going to go see him, right? And I said, I don't know, not really. And they were like, "Uh, you have to. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so there was this kind of buildup in my brain. And then when he walked into the room, I felt relief because it just wasn't it, it did feel like, I know this person. I know how to talk to this person. This is going to be good. Well, you uttered a phrase, King Diamond, that totally <laughs> changed the dynamic in the room. I mean, the, the dynamic went from sounding like a better version of the tape as, that we had heard earlier in the podcast of Paul being <laughs> Paul, except in person, to a completely, from a listener's perspective, I'll tell you, chilling atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And you used silence like very effectively. You didn't, you just let him... You let him be chilling and you sort of let him react and you let him talk. Were you thinking in the moment, holy crap, or were you thinking, this is great tape, I need to I need to stay quiet right here? Or was it some combination of the two of those things? I think when I'm in the room, I'm not thinking about tape. There's so many times, even in that interview, I'll listen afterwards and want to beat myself over the head for <laughs> not having thought better about the tape. At that moment, the King Diamond one... I, I knew I couldn't ask him that head on. Like, I knew I couldn't say, a person said, da, 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 what do you have to say to that? I knew he would just say, no, that didn't happen. So it had to come out a little bit from the side. Also, what I was expecting him to do was the thing he always does, always, where I would say, oh, so what about King Diamond? And he would say, well, King Diamond was a band that I used to listen to in high school, and I like them because of this reason. And, that you know, just sort of go on this railroad of of a tangent and what actually happened really caught me off guard his face changed the mood in the room just completely turned upside down and he leaned forward and I just held my ground I think I didn't say anything because I there's nothing I could say I was just watching him and seeing where he would go and then he kept saying you answer my question you answer my question and then at some point I, I did. I said, this is this is the alternate image I have of that night. And I gave it to him and then he, you know, responded the way he did. Didn't you think that some of the details he gave you when he was responding to your, you know, very simple King Diamond question, like what does King Diamond mean? Do you think that some of the details that he sort of gave you in that sort of very, very passionate response? He was actually filling in your version of the story. He was sort of filling it in for you, saying, who told you that? Did someone tell you that I was at yeah. at the house taking a shower? It was really, really something. And was, yeah. was, was that what surprised you, is that he was kind of corroborating the thing that you hadn't even yes. asked him about yet? Yes. He, it really pushed a button. And I, I don't think I've ever managed to do it. And maybe it's because we were there in person. Maybe on the phone it would have gone differently and he would have just been able to talk in a way that didn't show any change of tone. And the fact that he wanted to know who said it Mm -hmm. was really telling for me because generally, again, there's been a hundred times where I've said like, oh, what, what if it had happened this way? Or I heard this and he never really cared who said the thing here. It was, he needed to know because he didn't know how to respond to the thing. If he didn't know who had said it, does that make sense? It completely makes sense, and it, I think, gives a lot of insight into where the line is when you are really 
I don't know. And I obviously I'm I know a lot less about the case than you do, obviously. But in uh-huh. my experience and talking to people who have done things, when you get very close to what actually happened, the tone of the conversation does change. It just does because there is a a story that is so different from the one that uh-huh. they have been crafting forever. And when you sort of cut through it and get to something that's much closer to what happened, it is an unsettling experience for them. And it, it changes yeah. it changes the dynamic. And what's really interesting about this story for me, Ruthie, is that you start out talking about something interesting, an interesting case, arguably a bad trial. Uh, you know, you have all of this, all of these dynamics in play, the fact that he has autism and that was never brought out and that, you know, his sort of emotionless affect was held against him. All these very interesting criminal justice issues come into play. Uh-huh. And then then there's this turn where there's a lot of doubt, possible wrongful conviction doubt. Uh-huh. And then at the very end, you kind of come full circle and you really have a theory of the case that, you know, does implicate him in participating in this murder. And I'm wondering how much of this for you looking back on it is the story of what happened to Paul Madrowski and how much of it is the story about your exploration of the truth around the Paul Madrowski case? I can't separate those two things anymore. This whole story Our executive producer, Tim Howard, who is a genius, honestly, the story is as much his brainchild as it is mine. He always said from the beginning, like, this is a story where you cannot be afraid to be the eye. You have to be there with us. And I went into this, like I said, hoping that he was telling the truth. I had a relationship with this person. He was a really compelling character. His blog was compelling. And I wanted to believe him and in the end, like, I was just left without any reasons to be on his side. It's hard to come out at the end of a story and say, hey, this story you've been telling me, I think there are big chunks of it that are true. But I think there's these parts of it that you're just not seeing in the way that anybody else will. I, I don't know if this is a tangent, but just to give you a little example, that story about the kid he stabbed when he was 14 years old. Even yesterday, Paul and I were still arguing about it because, you know, obviously I told him and I told his mother and his sister before the story came out. I said, listen, this is the conclusion I've come to and here's why. And Paul, of course, disagreed and was like, you're wrong and you're not thinking about it logically. And I said, Paul, you went up to a kid when you were 14 years old. The kid did not have a weapon. You stabbed him in the arm. I don't think you're doing anything logically. I don't think logic is the path that will take me to understanding what's going on in your brain. And he's like, oh, but that kid, I never really stabbed him. I scratched him. The knife slipped from my hand. And it's like, you know, I have the police reports. I've spoken to the the kid who is now a man who still has nerve. Do you know what I mean? I realize at some point he's going to still keep trying to convince me. And at some point I have to say, it's not working anymore. Like you're not convincing me anymore. I've talked to too many people. I've seen too many facts. I've really, this is what I believe now. How much do you think um, you're going to stay in touch with Paul Madrowski after now that the story is is finished? Are you going to continue the relationship or are you going to uh, do the fade away? I'm curious what his reaction will be to the story. Every story so far, I he'll call me and I will put the phone in the studio and turn on the speakers so he can hear how it sounds because there's no, I can't send him a CD or anything. But the first episode when I played it for him, he said, oh, it's uh, very well edited. I think you did a really good job. And uh, whoever does your music, you should fire him. <laughs> and so, and you know, there's obviously these stories have had a lot of negative information about him. It's not like we're portraying him as an angel. You know, he was fine with that. 
this one, I know he disagrees with my conclusion, so I have to see what he says. There are things about him that I still respect and like. I, I, I'm not saying that we're friends or anything, but certainly I like to keep in touch with the people I've done stories with, if anything, just to see what happens to them. I'm the person who always wants to know the ending. So he's working on a post-conviction petition. Like, I am curious how that goes. Well, Sruthi Penamanini, I cannot thank you enough for talking to me about your reporting on this case. It's really, really something. And I know that we've been told by a lot of people to listen to it. We're all really glad we did. And um, we're so glad that you joined us on our show to talk about it. Oh, so my pleasure. Thank you. Again, that was Reply All producer Sruthi Pinamanini chatting with me about her four-part series on the inside, which you can find on the podcast Reply All. We've posted a link to that podcast on our website, crimewriterson.com. So, Kevin, what did you think of my interview with Sruthi? It was great, very compelling, and I have to say that I got a lot of respect for her as a radio producer now. It was so gripping and dramatic, especially that final interview with Paul. The only thing I can think of that could be more dramatic and gripping would be an audiobook from Audible.com. Oh, yes. yes. Know, Audible has over 250,000 titles from all sorts of leading publishers you can Get them on virtually every mobile and audio device you can think of. If it plays sound, you can get Audible on it. And they have the great listen guarantee. If you don't like the book that you choose, you can exchange that at any time. No questions asked. And Rebecca, I keep thinking you're listening to podcasts and say, who's that British podcast? Well, it's a book. What are you listening to right <laughs> well, now? Well, my favorite audiobook that I've listened to recently is uh, Wild Lake by Laura Lippman. Excellent, excellent novel. I recommend it very highly. And I've also been listening to A Ton of British Mysteries by Linda LaPlante. Toby, I know you must have an audiobook recommendation. Yeah, I would uh, recommend Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Which is uh, it won the Man Booker, I think. Anyway, Ooh, it's uh, it's about Thomas Cromwell, who was sort of the hard man for uh, Henry VIII, and uh, did a lot of his sort of behind the scenes work. It's really You're not well selling written. it for me, man. <laughs> Dude, Toby's smarter than we are. We just have to go with it. <laughs> no, you got you got to just take that leap. <laughs> All right, take that leap. Give it give it twenty minutes. We also asked our followers on Twitter for some of their audiobook recommendations. We got How to Build a Girl, Columbine, The Good Nurse, and The Art of Asking. Now, just for our listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash crime and start your free trial today. Again, show your support for Crime Writers On and get a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash crime. I use it. I recommend it. Yeah, you know who else uses something from this show? An awful lot. It's Laura. She loves plated.com. She does. Am I right, Laura? <laughs> I do. I actually cooked a plated meal this evening. We had the Mushu chicken tonight. Oh, that looked good. It was really tasty. And you know what I love about this what? is that my son, who's an extremely picky eater, will try new things. And tonight he was actually sprinkling chives over his little Mushu chicken, which was very out of character. Um, but it was shown in the picture. Wow, so fantastic. Yeah. Now, just so people who don't know, Plated is the convenient new way to cook better dinners at home. And right now they're offering an irresistible trial deal with your first Plated delivery, a free dinner for two in your first box. With Plated, you can make meals that you never imagined. Laura, you always have a cookbook. You're a foodie, but you love how all this stuff comes to you ready to go, right? 
I do. Because you know what? During the week, I don't have time to do these elaborate cooking projects that I like to do on the weekend. And what's great about this is each recipe, they put all the ingredients in this little green bag. It's like one of those little Debbie Myers green bag things. And it's all there and it's all ready to go. And it's super easy. But yeah. it's also super tasty. Yeah, that's it. definitely the best meal that you could have all week. Create chef-designed dinners at home with Plated. Go to plated.com slash crime now to get started with your trial and claim a free dinner for two with your first box. Yep, a free dinner for two. Free? Free! Nice. You can thank Laura for that. Just go to plated.com slash crime for terms and details. That's plated.com slash crime. Crime. So, uh, Laura, do you think that Kevin's transition into those ads was as smooth as I thought it was? Uh, It was like smooth as silk. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean... I, I think it's a pretty consistently high quality these days. I think so, too. I think so, too. I'm wondering if maybe we don't need to rate it anymore. It's getting that good. I, I don't think so. I think I got the training wheels off now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now it's time to talk about what we actually all came here to talk about, and that is the four episodes of Reply All called On the Inside. So, crime writers, let's start big. Uh, Laura, what did you think of the style of this true crime series put out by Reply All? It was very different than Serial, but in some ways similar. Just what are your overall thoughts about the series? Uh, I really like it. Um, I loved the sort of feeling like you were going along with her when she was going to different places, when she was talking to people. I loved the voices. I loved once again hearing those jailhouse phone calls when she was calling in. Um, it was it was very compelling. What did you think, Toby? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I really liked it. I mean, it seems like there's been enough time now since Serial Season 1 that uh, people put together some really good true crime podcast stuff. And I, I think as we listen to them, they get, keep continually getting better. Uh, so I thought this was I thought this was really, really well done. Kevin, your thoughts? I, I think this is the closest to Serial of any podcast that is, you could call this serial electric boogaloo. I mean, it's that close. It's got the, you know, the podcaster relationship with the prisoner behind bars, the flimsy evidence, the weird trial, the suspicious, shifty, colorful witnesses. Um, you even got somebody, you know, lending them a car when they shouldn't. And a very dramatic ending. But the format is very different. Instead of narrative journalism, I mean, there's some of there's some narrative journalism, but they're also, because of the format of Reply All, there is the studio two-way. Where yeah. they record that, that's the format of the show. Do you think that that works? It did, but it, it was there in, in bits and pieces. It was right. predominantly Saruthi giving her, her story in general, not being interrupted by PJ and Alex. Right, right, right. So, Toby, Paul Madrowski, we're introduced to him early in the series. We meet him because he has this quirky blog. And I'm curious, you know, what were your first impressions of Paul? You know, they weren't... You didn't like him. I... Well, I didn't like him later. I mean, it's just we're talking about before we we like find out more about him, right? It's just like his first like, oh, here's this interesting guy who writes a blog and his mom edits out stuff that makes him angry so he doesn't want to do it anymore. That that kind of seemed like something that could be like an independent movie or something. Mm-hmm. I thought the dynamic between the idea that there's this this guy who's in prison who's like totally reliant upon his mom to like get his thoughts out and then she is like selectively editing things like not wanting to put in that he's an atheist Mm -hmm, like even though he's in jail for murder like she just doesn't want anybody to think he's an atheist (laughs) which I thought was like a little strange so yeah at that point you know my my opinion changed but at that point 
it was an interesting story and he seemed like the whole idea of the the lengths that he was going through to do this blog and how it was you know fairly well written the mechanics of getting it done I, it was it was I thought it was pretty interesting Laura what did you think of the fact that this guy in prison was writing a blog you know at first I was really surprised I was like god that's weird first of all how does he even know what a blog is right um, mm-hmm. because he hasn't been on the internet um, and just the sort of dynamics of how he was in the logistics of how he was getting it up there. And then I went and actually looked. I don't know if any of you looked at the blog, but his blog posts are like everyone is like a book. They're so long. But, you know, I remember when Jodi Arias had her trial going on, somebody was running like a Twitter account for her during the trial. Um, and so every night there would be tweets coming out from her, even though she was in prison, which was also kind of odd. But I, I did a little looking into this today. And there are a lot of prison blogs. Huh. Um so, yeah, and some of them were, you know, kind of X-rated. They're all recounting all their, you know, sexual conquests. But other ones are kind of chronicling life behind bars. Um, there's a couple in the U.K., one in Thailand, Thai prison life. So it's just interesting to me that this is kind of a forum where, you know, people that are incarcerated are getting their voices out there, and it's actually happening. Hi, Laura, um, can you send us a couple of links to some of the prison blogs you found so we can post them on our website? Sure. John's Jail Journal. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like some of these blogs are very well branded, that's for sure. Live from lockdown. <laughs> blogs written by various inmates in the federal prison system, including highly influential gang leaders and those held in solitary confinement. I think we found another spin-off podcast for Laura to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Laura Talks Prison Blogs. Yeah. So, Kevin, uh, Sruthi gives us an overview of Paul's case. She begins with that chicken restaurant massacre mm-hmm. and, and the setting for the crime that he's ultimately convicted of. That's sort of the background of law enforcement and the, the feelings in that you know region at the time, very right. influenced by that. And then, ultimately, he's convicted of the murder of Dean Fawcett. We talked about the podcast Someone Knows Something and the importance of picking the right case for a project like this. What do you think of this case, and was it a good one for her to pick for this story? Well, it was an excellent one, and in a way she got lucky because, as as we've been saying, there needs to be a satisfying ending. And as we heard in your interview with her, I mean, the real-time reporting was still going on. She was three-quarters of the way through this podcast before she really had that ending. Maybe she had an alternative ending if she hadn't gone to see Paul in prison and we had that fantastic, dramatic interchange. But, yeah, this was a great one to pick. And you wouldn't have thought that, first off. You wouldn't have thought that. But it built, and it was a really good character study. And just speaking for myself... I thought that it's next to Serial Season 1. This is the best one we've heard. So, Toby, you know, we did hear some of the details about some of the people involved in the case. Paul being this intimidating kid who knew how to fight. He fell in with a group of thugs, did petty crimes. They used him as sort of the teenage muscle. What did you think of the case, the characters in it? Uh, Did you think it was a good choice for a true crime story? You know, looking back at Someone Knows Something, I think one of the problems with it was that there wasn't anybody you know, and I think the ones that have been successful have had like a central character, whether they think they're guilty or innocent or aren't sure who you can kind of focus the podcast around. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting group. I mean, Paul himself is a pretty interesting character who, um, you know, in some ways is larger than life. A large part of me feels bad for him in that. Uh, especially in the last episode, you get this sense that he he views the world as being hostile. Right. And, you know, that combined with the the challenges that he has with autism, I I think he's a troubled 
unhappy person. Do you think he views the world as, as hostile as a result of the way the world interacts with him because of his autism? Or do you think, you know, we heard PJ talking about the difference between who you are and the problem that you have. When you say you feel sympathy, how do you see that line being drawn for Paul Madrowski? Well, I mean, that's, that's a good question. You know, it, it's hard for me to say, I guess, based on, you know, what we've heard just as far as what is his personality and what is his inability to, to have sort of genuine responses to what he's perceiving. But I think as far as his actions, so when I was hearing about him, I... I was thinking about like when you're a freshman in college and you're drinking beers with with your new buddies and everybody's talking about like how messed up their high school was or this party where the stuff happened. And then some guy's like, well, there's this guy who's like six, three. And he was like really strong. And his nickname was Satan. And he used to like walk down the halls. And if you're in his way, he'd just push you out of the way. <laughs> and he stabbed If you didn't guy. get out of his way, he'd just like jump on you and like beat you up. <laughs> And everybody would be like, no way, man, dude, you know, and other people would be like, yeah, right, whatever. I mean, this it's sort of a nightmarish situation. Like if you're a freshman at that high school and you see that guy coming, yep. like you're going to, you're going to hide. So, you know, he's not a very sympathetic character in the way he acts. Right. And it, it's just, it's merely the fact that he is troubled and most likely, you know, dealing with like severe anxiety and unhappiness makes you feel some sympathy for him, but his actions certainly don't. What about you, Laura? Did you have sympathy for him? I mean, you you have historically been, you know, maybe aside from me, the most empathetic toward, you know, for Bo Bergdahl, for instance, who also dealt with some personality disorder challenges, and you were a very empath, you know, you've been very empathetic toward a lot of the more controversial figures in a lot of the cases that we've discussed. What did you think of Paul Madrowski when you were hearing about him? Well, it's it's hard because he presents and like I did not feel sympathy listening to him listening to him I felt like he comes across as a thug he comes across as somewhat I don't want to say belligerent but he doesn't come across very likable to me so I wasn't as sympathetic as I was to Bo Bergdahl or Adnan but when I think about the bigger picture I'm like you know this guy really had the cards stacked against him but it was harder for me to get to that place just because of the way he presents, um, just the, the way he talks. And then I looked him up and his picture, like what, you know how you imagine what someone's going to look like when yeah. you're reading a book? Yeah. He did not look like what I expected him to look like. No, he looks a lot all. tougher to me than I expected him to look and a lot more like steely. He has a very sort yeah. of, um, he looks like an actor cast to play a scary guy who's been convicted of murder. But, yeah. like, but like the guy who, you know, he's also very nice looking guy he doesn't look he doesn't have like tattoos all over his neck or anything like he's like a kind of a good looking chiseled but very icy intimidating looking dude right yeah oh, he, he looked frightening to me I looked and I said whoo I would not want to, and I could see how he would be an enforcer when you look at him you wouldn't want to mess with him now Kevin you and I wrote a book together about uh, the Seth Bader case and there were some very colorful characters in that case mm-hmm. and a lot of the descriptions of the people in this case reminded me of the people in the case that we wrote about there's a sort of like the one like fast talking like wise guy you know the sort of tight-knit group of four people, men and women. They had this bogus check scheme. They went on the shopping spree. They had this young person that they brought in to sort of be their muscle. And ostensibly, Dean Fawcett, the victim in this case, was killed because someone was afraid he would rat them out for their petty crime schemes. Not not all petty. I mean, there was some drug stuff. There was a lot of... But did you buy that version of the murder story? It seems like a plausible motive. There are... uh, People have been killed for lesser things than, you know, the fear that They were going to get ratted out over some check-kiting scheme. There were parts of Bob's story that I found a little 
a Hoff. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we can get into some of these other Oh, characters. we're going to talk about Bob immediately next after we finish talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of circle back to what everybody else was saying about Paul and uh, whether they, essentially, whether they liked him or not or drawn him. I was not emotionally invested in him as a character, but his case and, and sort of as a study into whether or not his condition led to a misperception of his culpability or, you know, I mean, I think it was very obvious that a lot of the press and the jurors and the lawyers and the judge all perceived him differently because they were unaware of his autism. And so, you know, it was one of the predominant questions that ran through the series was, was he misunderstood because of his autism? Right. And did that lead to a stiffer sentence or, or what were the consequences of that? Right. So I was more invested in that question. And I think that was enough to sort of get you to the end. Well, we get this whole affect in court thing. We hear that over and over again. And that's coming up actually in a lot of wrongful conviction cases that the affect of a defendant is used by the prosecution to say, you know, but how is somebody supposed to act when they're on trial for murder? You know, we hear about how boring it is to sit there for eight hours a day for five weeks. Like, where are you supposed to how, look? And how remorseful <laughs> are you supposed to appear if exactly. you're saying that you're innocent of the Exactly, crime, you know? exactly, so. exactly. All right, well, let's talk about the other big character in the case. That's Bob Faraci. This is the Joe Pesci of the... What do I amuse? <laughs> of the yeah, gang, funny. Like very sort of, you know, the very sort of fast talking manipulator of the group. And then there's this scene where Sruthi actually tracks him down. Now, uh, Bob Faraci has been, they had this dual trial, which we'll talk about with these two juries. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Sruthi actually tracks down Bob Faraci, who was acquitted of his role in Dean Fawcett's murder. And you heard me ask this question, Laura, and I'm curious to what you think. Why would Bob consent to do this interview with her? What's in it for him to talk to her at this point so many years later? That's a good question. I think, you know, if, if it was anything, I think it's probably curiosity because he's wondering what she's dredging up and what's going on with this case and how or if he's going to be re-implicated in it. What did you think of that part of the podcast or interview with Bob Faraci in the um, in that vehicle? This was one of my favorite scenes of the podcast. You know, there was definitely suspense as he started to get more agitated and then he's like, how do I even know who you really are? And it was so authentic listening to it and when he was sweating and he was getting shaking and they got out of the car and then they got in the car. It added some more, you know, mystery to this entire case because once you listen to him talk, you're like, this guy is so full of it. Um, you know, I didn't believe a word he said. And I do think the only reason he talked to her was to find out what she was doing. So I think everything that he said was sort of suspect, but it was bizarre with the girlfriend in the back seat and um, the whole thing. It just had something out of like a bad detective novel, you know, like this this clandestine meeting in the parking lot. What did you think of this part of the podcast, Toby? And and what did you think of Bob Faraci and what he had to say? It seems like all those guys really took their cues and then they talk about it from movies and especially gangster movies. And, you know, they describe themselves and each other as being like people who are in movies that they've watched. And that was sort of my impression of both like why he did it and some of the reasons why he acted the way he did during the interview in that it seemed like the way that somebody in a movie would act if they were put in a similar situation in the course of a movie. It seemed like he was sort of envisioning himself in a grand gangster type situation. I don't know if like the sort of weird nervousness and sort of theatrical suspicion it just, it, it seemed kind of over the top, but not surprising given how they kind of viewed themselves. 
Kevin, why do you think that Bob talked to Sruthi? I think it was ego. I mean, I think that Bob certainly sounds like somebody who really likes himself. I was my own best witness. I was on the stand for an hour and a half. By the way, an hour and a half on the stand. Not a very long time. Right? I mean, Laura, right? An hour, you you know, you're not even going yet. And uh, so I talked for an hour and a half, talked myself right out of that. And, you know, he does seem like a sort of flashy kind of wise guy. I definitely think that he, you know, maybe he, part of the thing, maybe I shouldn't do this, but he really wants to. Right. And, you know, maybe he was also smart enough to know that he he, uh, would find out a little more about where the story was going and he would have an opportunity to shape the narrative a bit. But I don't know if I agree with Saruthi that he just felt bad because she waited for an hour outside his house. I mean, I think... It was like, okay, this is our opportunity. Now, Laura, I did want to ask you about that single trial with two separate juries. Is this something that you're familiar with at all in your work in defense? I think it's nutty. I've I've never heard of something like that happening here in New Hampshire. It was crazy. Do you understand the idea, though, that parading the same 30 witnesses in to testify, you know, not making them do it twice, but rather just having two sets of 12 people <laughs> rotating in and out? I mean, does that make sense to you yeah. like, in any efficiency kind of way? I mean, I, it does in an efficiency kind of way. But as a strategy kind of way, it's like, how can you ensure that these witnesses are going to be fresh on the second go round? And then I don't know, does both attorneys get to watch each witness? So does the second attorney that goes have sort of the edge over the first attorney that goes because they've already seen how a particular witness will testify? I mean, it really was out there to me. But they don't have to sever. I don't know why they couldn't just use one jury. Because yeah, to I'm, me, and Laura, tell me, and obviously, Toby, you can jump in. We don't want to exclude Toby you. Toby has probably served on more juries than anybody It's true. We know. He loves to bring <laughs> yeah, that not, up. Not in that situation. But look at this. <laughs> but, One of the juries acquitted Bob and basically said, okay, you know, in the eyes of the law, Bob is not a murderer. Wouldn't that same jury versus the other jury, wouldn't those jurors also reason then that Paul couldn't have been the accomplice if Bob wasn't the murderer? Yeah, boy, this is like a game of Clue. But I think from a defense point of view, you would want to sever those trials. I mean, you want to do your own thing. You don't want them to go together like that. Right. It seemed it was like a circus show or something. So what were the mechanics? Like, would they have known that uh, Bob went up and took the stand, but that Paul didn't? I think it would depend on which jury was in the room at the time. Wasn't it sometimes both were in the room and sometimes one were in the room? I don't remember. It was really complicated. It, that that it, seems like just like another way in which Paul would have gotten screwed. Like, first he had like lawyers who seemed pretty incompetent. But then if Bob was willing to get up there and, quote unquote, be forthright to the jury. For 90 minutes. But then Paul was unwilling to do it. I think that contrast doesn't do him any favors. Yeah. And look, if I'm Paul's attorney, right, and Bob's on the stand, I want a chance to cross-examine him. Yeah. How can he be, uh, how can he like be testifying in his trial, but not in the other trial? And of course, Bob's attorney wants to provide direct examination so that he can make this client look good. And the prosecutor, of course, wants to cross-examine. So I, I don't see how you don't get three lawyers up there taking swings at the same guy. It's really something, and it's hard. I don't know. Maybe it's if you see it, it makes a lot of sense. Well, but it, it's also hard to imagine that as a defendant, I'm just going to say, imagine you're Paul and you had nothing to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. But then you're watching the trial of a guy whose defense is that you did it, right? Right. And so how can you then do the things you need to do to put on like an effective defense and be a good advocate for yourself when you've just watched a trial at which your culpability is the reason why this guy thinks that he's going to get off of the crime. Like it's very, very, it doesn't seem to do a service to either of the defendants to me. Am I am I crazy to think that? Laura, what do you no, think? I, I agree. I mean, and I think it, it was more people didn't want their schedules to be, you know, stuck in this trial for months, 
two trials for months and months. They're doing it at the same time. But I just think that there's more advantages to doing it separately in the normal way that we would expect. I sort of had a dumb analogy running through my head the whole time, which was, you know, you were talking about comps on a house, you know, last yeah. last time we talked. I was thinking about, like, you know, when um, there's a reason why you hire a real estate agent to sell your house. And part of it is because, you know, that's their job. But another part of it is because you shouldn't show your own house. Like, you shouldn't be home when people are looking at your house because you can't, as a buyer, walk through a house and say, I hate this kitchen when the homeowner is home. You know what I mean? It has to be a separate transaction. Like, there has to be some clinical separation. And I think that with trials, it's like there has to be a separate trial between Bob and Paul. I don't know. I know it's a dumb analogy, but that's what I kept thinking now, about. I mean, there, there are odd things about the trial. I mean, you, you can say that, well, Paul's attorney should have presented the alibi witness and uh, other things like that. But I, I think that the big takeaway for me was Bob said... He looked every juror in the eye right. as if to tell them, I didn't do this. And that is something that we know Paul would not do. Can't do, probably. Can't do, right. probably, because of his autism spectrum disorder, which I thought was a great takeaway because it continues to lead me down the idea that the story is about and the story, you know, the truth is that it's because of his autism that he is in jail. It's probably true that he was sentenced more harshly because he didn't show any, he, he came off as being very cold. And some of the jurors said that afterwards as well. The truth of whether or not he's responsible for Dean's death is separate. But did his autism play a role in the legal case? It seemed to be a factor. I I think it's really the sentencing, Mm -hmm. like Kevin said. And I think the judge, at one point when she's interviewing him, basically says, you know, he had that cold look in his eye and I like dressed him down. And then she's like, well, he has autism. He's like, oh, well, you know, that kind of changes things. Do you like how Uh, he just like off top of his head read his line like uh, that he gave? Like he was Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction? Like, that's just some badass shit, I like to say. Laura, were you surprised to hear the voice of the judge? I mean, that for me, that was surprising. That's a voice you yeah, usually hear. Yeah, you just read my stories. mind. Yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. The judge is giving an interview. I have, I mean, that's... He must be retired by a million years, right? Yeah, but still, I mean, it's it's rare, it's I, I think. very it's, rare. Yeah, and to be so candid and to be so open about this case, I was very surprised. Well, that was one of the things that I think really took this story where Serial, I think, was superior in terms of, you know, that it was 12 episodes, it was produced like a narrative piece of journalism, it was more of a journey, and this was very much, I think, produced more in the traditional sort of public radio style, but obviously with a lot of things that made it better and different. The thing that Sruthi has that Serial didn't have in these four episodes was an access that we did not get in Serial that really frustrated us. And of course, the climax of that right after this conversation with the judge is her face-to-face interview with Paul Madrowski in prison. And there's obviously great audio of the setup and the greeting, and she describes the table, and then uh, she talks about the reason that she's there. We know that all their conversations before this that we've heard anyway have been for the most part civil and respectful sometimes awkward and then there's a big shift in mood a very big shift in mood so right before that shift in mood uh toby did you have a sense that something was coming or did you think everything was cool and we were just going to hear more of the same i had zero idea like (laughs) it it does when it does hit it seems like it's kind of out of the blue So she triggers him, basically, with uh, an expression that she got from somebody on background. And so Laura, then she says to Paul Madrowski, King Diamond. She uses this phrase and basically asks him what that means. And he loses it. We don't know even what it means at this point when he loses it. And then... Rosebud. (laughs) What did you think of this moment in the podcast when Paul Madrowski went from being stoic and 
just sort of saying it like it is and Hops straight. Up on coffee. And then suddenly <laughs> um, she throws this expression out at him. And as Kevin says, what's your favorite expression? He flips shit. <laughs> what, what, what did you think about that moment in the podcast, Laura? I loved it. You know, it just reminded me. I don't know. Have you guys have seen the latest Marvel movie, the uh, Captain America Civil yeah. War? Yeah, yeah. The character in that, that's the Winter Soldier, and they say some certain words, and all of a sudden he flips his shit and like goes into this <laughs> killing machine because it like triggered something in his brain. Manchurian it, candidates. Or like yeah. one of those right. dogs that they speak German or you know Czechoslovakian to that all of a sudden they attack, mm-hmm. please attack dogs. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, no, so that's that's what I'm thinking as you're describing. I'm like, oh, yeah, we just saw that last weekend, and that's what this guy did. But what it, it, to me, I was thinking, this is a sign that he knows, that she knows, or he thinks that she knows what really happened. Because only somebody that, it made me think there was some sort of inside story about King Diamond and the murder, and that her mentioning it just triggered him because he was thinking maybe she wasn't really on to whatever the whole story was. And this was clearly an indication that she knew and had talked to somebody that really was there. Getting to this point in the podcast throughout, I think that as a listener, what you have to believe is you have to believe that there's a chance that he didn't do it. You know, there's a chance that he's misunderstood. And you went in this episode, the you went direction, back right? and forth. Right, right. right. You, you're like, oh, well, you had, he was really cold. Then you hear, oh, from the ex, well, he's a client. Yeah, he couldn't do this. He couldn't make up a fake story because he didn't get it. Oh, okay, so maybe. He, so you keep going back and forth. And I think what happens is the setup to King Diamond is the story about the girlfriend. Right. And the guy getting stabbed in the arm. Because all of a sudden, like, oh, wow, that's some cold shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was young. When she confronts him with the, that story, and it seems so clear that he is lying. What, the, the breaking into the house? The breaking into the house. Yes. That, you know, that wasn't me. That was somebody else. And, oh, the phone call was nothing. That is so clearly, all of a sudden, you see him at the, at the ability to lie. Right. That's the first step where his credibility has washed away. To and me, his credibility makes, shatters. It makes the, the whole next question, it sets that up. Because now you are ready to believe. So- after that, that sets up the whole King Diamond confrontation where now you can see it. And I think that for me, I was taken aback because I I think I really wanted to have a story where this was the thing, yeah, that he was misunderstood and he's there wrong and here's a way to correct the injustice. It is, in a way, chilling and horrifying to all of a sudden realize, you know, this guy that I did have some sympathy for, wow. I think he really did it. What did you think of that moment, Toby, and how Paul Madrowski reacted to her, you know, that that series of questions that she asked him? Well, a couple things. One is Kevin did a really good job of describing like how as listeners, like this whole thing gets set up. And my sense is that it probably was a similar reaction on Paul's point of view, which is that, you know, she kind of corners him on something. And I don't know how self-aware he is to know that these lies he's telling are just completely ridiculous. And so that he's like sort of implicating himself as being someone who is dishonest. The the whole King Diamond thing, quite honestly, if I had read that in a book, I would have been like, seriously, like, how's he putting together this band with this one particular time that he listened to them in the shower? Like, how does he remember that detail and know that that's what she's referring to? But, uh, you know, he does. And he says, what does he say? Like, 
why 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 would they mention King D- Diamond? Why not Danzig? Right. Which I th- I thought was pretty funny. Well, um, I, I I think there's something to what Laura says though, because the one way he would put it together quickly would be if there were anecdotes told within a group of people where they sort of went over the story again and it became like something they talked about, and that was a part of the narrative for them. Was that remember how yeah. we came home and you did that thing where you were listening to that horrible King Diamond right. song? Yeah. Or it could have been he smashed the CD, or he ended up getting into an argument with another person about this music but it's, I love this music huh. it was it's a MacGuffin in a way it doesn't really matter there's a reason why that person know. on background I, I, told uh, the story though go ahead have Laura. you heard King Diamond before <laughs> no would it, would it drive you to kill somebody <laughs> uh, Maybe it they... might the only, the, I only know one song which is called No Presents for Christmas oh damn <laughs> guilty as charged <laughs> But it's, it's yeah, it's pretty intense. I, I agree, Rebecca. I think there's something with this, like either they were listening to this song, this band, when they were cutting him up or when they were washing up after. I mean, there's there's some significance to make him react that strongly. But isn't it even better that we don't know what it is? Yes. And it's more the reaction. Yes. And yeah. it's that almost two minutes, I don't know what, how long it was, of him just reacting and confronting her. How do you know this? And what it was. Everything about him just screamed that this was this was a big deal. Yeah. I think back through that whole scene and her setting up, and there is sort of like a, an overly cute public radio thing where you hear the person setting up and all that stuff. In this edit of that scene, it's very intentional that you hear her telling him to lean forward and kind of what you, she has him She's do. She's slow peddling you into this She's big slow, moment. Exactly. And it's so beautifully crafted and well done. And one of my my favorite moments of the podcast is when she says, and then I had to take a, a minute of room tone like we have to do for every interview. This is what I wanted to know. That one minute, you you feel the tension. I wanted to, who was looking? Were you looking at them? Were you looking, were your arms crossed? What was that was moment Was she staring at the corner? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the... It, you know, it's like okay, we just broke up. She's staring at the s- monitor. We on have her, to sit here for a minute now. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was really, really something. So, you know, one of the things that happened also in that prison visit, Laura, that I wanted to ask you about was because you know Paul did go to great lengths to talk about how he mimics the emotions and interactions with people because of his autism, and it made me think about other kinds of personalities that, that do the same mm-hmm. thing. I mean, did you draw any parallels there between what he was talking about and maybe what we've heard about? other personality types? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, I was thinking, you know, who else mimics? Who uh, a sociopaths. And I think some people may question if he is a sociopath. You know, we, we don't know. But I think it's people that are, you know, definitely not within the normal range are mimicking their behavior how they think they should be. And that was something that came to mind was, you know, thinking about people that have no emotion that are trying to pretend that they do. Well, you know, who did that was Bo Bergdahl. Yeah. He studied, remember he's talking about how he studied his other platoon mates and how they acted and closest he could come to smoking cigarettes was the pipe. But he talked about how he studied that. So did Dexter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did Dexter. You know, this is but the... so did the, the outcast kid in high school. Oh, sure. Who looked at the way other people dress. I mean, there's, there is a, a variety of ways to do that. If he actually does have a 130 IQ on top of being on the autism spectrum, it's kind of like, what cancels the other one out? I mean, is he just so savvy in in this way? You know, there was the the talk about where does the disability end and the personality begin? That was very interesting. And this is my question. This is the big question I want to get to, because we did hear PJ Vote was talking about having ADHD, which I have as well. And you and I both know there are things about living with an ADD person 
that it's disorder, but disorder is personality in a lot of ways. You know, mm-hmm. like I can't close mm-hmm. a drawer after I, I open know. that drawer. You know, I know. <laughs> and you know, I go on a million tangents when we have conversations, just like I do on this podcast. <laughs> um, but you know, Toby, this was my big question. I want to start with you because she did make an excellent point and really reporting out and talking to experts that having autism doesn't mean you also aren't a psychopath or sociopath like you can be both and you know it doesn't eliminate the possibility that you know those other things exist inside of you and there's a theory now that she laid out that seems like it might be close to the truth that he was involved in the murder of Dean Fawcett very likely maybe was the one who cut off Dean Fawcett's head because of things that he had said earlier but we also know that he had this sort of bum trial and this bad defense now I guess my big question is feeling the way we do now, kind of going through this journey with Sruthi and coming to this conclusion as listeners along with her that there's something to the idea that he was involved in this crime, should he get a new trial? I mean, there is an appeal in process. And is it something that he should pursue anyway because the trial was likely an unjust one? What do you think, Toby? Whether he's guilty or innocent, he deserves a quote-unquote fair trial. And if uh, lawyers were negligent, like he should definitely get another trial. Yeah, no, I I agree because, you know, I was thinking about this and I'm like, I did not feel sympathy toward him as I was listening. But you don't always feel sympathy. You have to step back and say, you know, because sometimes people that are in these situations are hard to get along with. But the bigger picture is there were questions about how the trial played out. I think the biggest thing to, you know, that is, is the sentencing and the mitigating factors that they introduced at his sentencing as supposed mitigating factors. They, they could have done a much better job on that. And the fact that autism was not even really mentioned in there, you know, that's something that they really should take another look at. And maybe it's not that he's going to be found not guilty, but perhaps he's going to be given a, a different type of sentence. I don't think that it rises to the level of a Christina Gutierrez incompetent representation. I don't think there's a Strickland violation here because the uh, mistakes that the attorneys made were strategic. They, you know, strategically chose not to present this kind of evidence and uh, in other kinds. However, I do think it might be, and I don't know if they do this in Illinois, but a, a sentence review to maybe see whether his sentence is appropriate. I, I don't know if there's enough there to say he should be retried. You know what you sound like when you talk about Strickland violations? What? The grinder. <laughs> I'm kind of like the grinder. You're basically and, the grinder. Yeah. You do a podcast about law, and so you're basically just like But what a if lawyer. I did? All right. So we've complained that many of these investigative podcasts have provided no well-crafted ending. I think I know how you guys are going to land on this one. Toby, did the end of this podcast, the end of this series of episodes of this podcast, satisfy you? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no question. Laura, what about you? Oh, yeah. This was, was kind of like the jinx, where at the end, all of a sudden, you get that, you know, the smile, and you're like, oh, that was a good ending. Yeah. 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 What about you, Kevin? Totally stuck the landing. <laughs> totally. It was like a gymnast, bam. It's like Nadia ten. Comaneci. Absolutely. <laughs> just just, the, just the, the, the feeling and attention of that last, that last minute, you, you know, you still have to walk away with your own conclusion. But God damn, that was good. It was. It was really, really good. I agree. So let's do what we always do at the end of a pop culture discussion. Let's rate what we listen to. So using a letter grade and very briefly explaining why you are giving it. Laura Bricker, how do you rate Reply All's miniseries on the inside? Go. 
I'm going to go with an A. I loved it. Um, I thought it, you know, I think it could have even been longer. Uh, it could have had more episodes, but I loved it. It was easy to listen to because it was so compelling. The story was great. I loved the characters and I loved the way that Shruti told the story. What about you, Toby? What's your letter grade and why? I'm getting lame because I'm giving this one an A too. I think it was excellent in all facets and the ending was like, this is what the jinx kind of, the ending that the jinx aspired to. It was great, I thought. And uh, I'm going to side with both of you guys and also give it an A. And now, Kevin, what about you? Letter grade for these four episodes of Reply All? I would have given part one about the blog B, uh-huh. but parts two, three, and then four, A. Absolutely. Really? You know, absolutely. Why? Probably the best, just because the way it built up, the great climax, <clears throat> the great climax, and you know what you really did is I really learned something. You did. And, yeah, yeah, and that's why I like the Great Courses Plus video <laughs> learning service, because I learn about all sorts of new things, with, anything with, and everything. With Professor Penamanini? With per, no, <laughs> Professor Elizabeth Murray has been doing this course that we've been talking about, Forensic History, Crimes, oh, yeah. Frauds, and Scandals. And I just watched two lectures, um, one on false confessions and one on bad convictions. And there's all sorts of other great stuff, not only in this lecture, but throughout The Great Courses Plus. You can listen to lectures on all sorts of stuff from art to philosophy to history and now the great courses plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses including forensic history which is a 235 dollars value for free 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 when they go to the great courses plus dot com slash crime so you can start watching today that's the great courses plus dot com slash crime 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 all right so I just want to do one listener comment real quick, a voice memo we got. A million people this week seemed to want to know if we were listening to Reply All, but we got one voice memo asking about something that we may or may not have watched. Let's just listen to that. Hey, Crime Writers. Uh, this is Heather. I just watched an HBO documentary that is on demand right now called Thought Crime. It is the story of the cannibal cop from New York City, and I was stunned at this whole documentary. It's fascinating and crazy, and I'm not exactly sure how I missed this story when it was actually happening. I'm wondering if any of you have seen this, and I would love to hear your thoughts. And if nothing else, the New York Post headlines that they show throughout the documentary are worth the price of admission 100%. Thanks so much for that voice memo, Heather. Uh, Laura, did you watch the documentary Thought Crimes? I did not. Toby, have you? No, I've seen it pop up, but I haven't watched it yet. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, you know, both and I, both you and I watched this. <laughs> we did. What did you think of it? It was really good. It was compelling. I mean, just in a nutshell, it is about the case of that New York cop who was arrested and charged with wanting to murder and cannibalize a victim. I'm going to forget a lot of sort of the big details here. Basically, it came down to he never... Did it. He never did it. Right. But there was a lot of, you know, online evidence of fantasies and stuff. So basically it comes down to, is this a thought crime? Basically what it comes down to is, is thinking about committing a crime and fantasizing about it, is it punishable? Yeah. It was a really interesting, I think, morality play. So it was. It was I'd recommend it. I think it's a good watch. So, And I agree. The, the New York Post headlines were... <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! They always, they the always where, are. Do you remember the end when the, he went on like Match dot com and he said that he liked cooking? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you know, they love that. All right, I think it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast—a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. 
Police in Michigan continue to question the possible eyewitness to a murder. They say Martin Durham was shot to death and his wife wounded by what they first believed to be an intruder. Now authorities think it was his wife, Glenna, who actually pulled the trigger. Among the evidence they've been collecting is the testimony of the family pet, an African gray parrot named Bud. Since the crime, the bird has been mimicking the voices of a man and a woman having an argument. And then the parrot says, don't effing shoot. Except the parrot doesn't say effing. He says the real word. Do you want to say it, Kevin? Don't fucking shoot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bird experts say if Bud witnessed a traumatic scene, it's very possible he'd repeat over and over again what he had heard. It's unclear if the parrot can be used as evidence in the case. But if he were to testify, we think Bud would sing like a canary. Y'all, I object to this Bud being here. <laughs> so here's my question for you all. And Laura, I will start with you. If police were to question a parrot living in your house, what would that witness say over and over again? Uh, get your shoes on for school. Where are your shoes? Where did you put your shoes last night? Can you find your shoes? You can't be missing your shoes. <laughs> what about you, Toby? What would the parrot from your house say? Get the ball to LeBron. Get the ball to LeBron. <laughs> And what about you, Kevin? What would the parrot in our house say? Uh, it's dinner time. Dinner's on the table. Dinner's getting cold. Dinner. <laughs> I'll take that Xbox away if you don't come for dinner. <laughs> that happens in our house. I disagree. I think the parrot would say, Kevin, where are you? Where do you think I am? I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get a moment of peace around here. Ouch. Can I, can, I, can my Twitter peeps, like, give me, like, help me out on this? A man's got to read. That's right. Man's got, I get my reading A done? man's got to tweet to his audience, and he's best doing it on the throne, right? That isn't what I said. <laughs> so I guess we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, you are on the Twitter, and you do not use it in the bathroom, correct? I do not. Uh, it's Eric at- does not want to know this. <laughs> it's at Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. And Toby, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At TobyBallNH. And Kevin, if people still want to tweet to you after listening to the end of this podcast, how can they do that? No photos. It's at Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also find me on Instagram at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us a tweet. We'll tweet you back. You can also send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted right on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find out all about us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C, a.k.a. a closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Hey, Kevin. Yes, Rebecca. So this week's show featured a special interview guest. Yeah, right. What was that person's name? uh, It's Sruthi Penanamanin? No. I can't read it. It's uh, Penanamanin. It's not Sruthi. It's Sruthi, right? How did you remember that? Uh, Because I knew someone named Ruthie. And you just put an S in the front of I put, it? Yeah. R- okay, I'm Sru- just going to say it and you're going to repeat after me. Ready? Yeah. Sruthi Penamanini. Sruthi Penamanini? Sruthi Penamanini?
Sruthi Penanimini. Sruthi Penanimini. Sruthi Penanimini. Is that her? Is that her maiden name, by the way? Sruthi Penanimini. Sruthi Penanimini. Nay Johnson. <laughs> That's that. Let me tell you about the Blue Cash Preferred Card from American Express with 6% cash back at U.S. supermarkets on up to $6,000 in purchases. That means 6% cash back on those cheeses you can't pronounce but eat anyway. Start earning cash back at MXBlueCash.com. Terms apply. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.